everyone, thank you for joining us for the first ever episode of The Accused with Luke and Brian Sheely, two criminal defense attorneys here located in South Carolina. Um, through the duration of this series, we'll highlight different local and national cases with different experts throughout the country, locally, starting first with the highly uh, sought after or anticipated coverage on the Murdoch trial. Thanks, Hannah. Yeah, I think, you know, we'd like to start um, talking about what everyone is focusing on, which is, you know, Alex Murdoch's disappointed his third week of his double murder trial. You know, we, you know, have trialed a number of murder cases, a number of uh, murder cases before a jury trial. And, you know, we, we actually in December were trying a double murder case in front of the Honorable Cliff Newman. So we, we have a lot of experience with this judge. We know some of the players, you know, and to start this, podcast off, I think we'll generally talk about, you know, the the three weeks of the trial, what parts are important from important from our perspective, not necessarily what is a state's theory or defense theory, but what this what we find unique. Um, and we'll go ahead and talk about some of today's witnesses, which were pretty mind blowing. So don't go anywhere. But Luke, um, you know, just talking about some of these forensic witnesses, um, I thought we could first start by discussing you know, the big forensic witness so far, well, maybe other than today, the firearms expert, Paul Greer. Oh, I can do that. You want to talk about the trial and how it's built up to this? Or just yeah, write? we can talk about that too. <laughs> yeah, okay. what's the build up to it? You want uh, to, I mean, everyone knows what it is. I mean, it's, there's no secret to what's yeah. going on. If you've been living under a rock, uh, the Murdoch trial um, is currently happening in, is it Carlton or Hampton? No, it's Carlton. Walter Grove, which is in Carlton County. Carlton yeah. County, um, being tried by Judge Newman. Um, the prosecution, the state, has been presenting their case for the last two and a half, three weeks. Yes. Um, yeah. So if you guys want to give us a brief overview, if you want the full thing, you can check it out on HBO. But if you yeah, want a brief so overview. We skipped over this part because this is the most notorious trial ongoing, but you know, the state has the burden of proof. They have to you know, make their case beyond a reasonable doubt. We're into witness I think 62 at this point. Mm -hmm. um, they were they were allowed to get in a lot of the over the objections of defense. The 404B is the the rules of evidence on it. Um, other crimes and bad acts to in this case show motive and you know makes defense lawyers cringe. Cringe. You got any more thoughts on on that? Yeah, it's fascinating. You've got this highly affluent, connected, generational wealth type former prosecutor who, you know, because Judge Newman has allowed all this evidence of financial crimes, which we'll talk about our thoughts on that, um, but because of that, it seemed clear he was in the middle of a crisis, drug use, money was going places, not enough was coming in, he was defrauding his friends, his law firm, his bank. But the question is, well, how does that exactly connect to these crimes, these two murders of the two people excluding his living son, Buster, that you, no one can say he was not just deeply, truly in love with these folks, described as a, having an idyllic relationship. So who killed him is the question. How is the state going to prove that? I mean, pretty much everybody who's talked about it concedes it's a, what we call a circumstantial case, meaning there is no confession, there is no eyewitness, there is literally no smoking gun, but you've got these horrific crimes and lots of inference 
And circumstantial evidence is just as good theoretically as direct, but the easy cases for the state are always that direct, that confession, that gun that was found in his pocket. That the ID. The ID from a witness who across the street. So we don't have any of that, but we have, you know, what the state would say is a very cleverly planned crime, although they say this is a man who's in full panic mode, who's, and when we get right down to the crux of it, the, the loose from our highly biased offense perspective, because these are, we want everybody to get a fair trial, to have due process rights, because if Mur Alec Murdoch can't have a fair trial with full due process rights granted to him, then average Joe Schmo Plummer is definitely not going to get it down the road. So we kind of hate to see that all of this evidence of financial crimes has been plowed into because it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us necessarily to say that kill your best friends as a distraction of impending financial implosion because... I would, I would submit that even if, if you had seen him get confronted at the office by, by lawyers and accountants that are missing money, and he's riding home calling his insurance broker, let's say, tweaking policies and payouts, and then he, his family turns up dead, I think that is perfectly appropriate to get into to show that he was hurting for money. But the fact to say that it's just simply a distraction away from a financial picture, all it did was put an international microscope on him and his whole family, and only then was all this discovered. So it's just not adding up. I don't know. Well, and it makes a major pellet issue if it goes down, but we have a whole yeah. section to talk about that later on. Um, Hannah, what are, we, what are we getting into today? So we've heard from a lot of different witnesses throughout this trial so far. I think you said 62 to begin with. But let's talk about some of the key witnesses that were brought up today to speak on. I think we had the pathologist today. Um, yeah, let me jump to that um, yeah, absolutely. so we can see where we are. But Well, first of all... Or just any, I mean, really any of the key witnesses that you think we'll you know, are really... We'll start really setting the stage for this case. Let's start. Let's start back with um, what about crime scene lady? <laughs> crime scene lady. <laughs> What's her name? Agent uh, Special Agent. They're all special, but um, I can't remember Agent her name. Zapata? No, this was like first week. But the thing that I'll just say why she's important is now she she sets the stage. Unfortunately, for a lot of police sloppiness, you got. Footprints going in places where they really shouldn't go. Oh, you're talking about the local crime scene. She's a slut agent. She's a slut, that's um, right. But the thing that really, that was the first time that the defense. We do have a, a list of things to talk about. Is that Agent Wynn? No, no, that, that, one, that was today. Let's go, back to, let's go back to <laughs> the beginning. Well, that was the first time that the defense was, really got some yeah. traction because she was forced to admit to Dick Harpootlian's trajectory analysis that there, you got shooters of Maggie and Paul coming from different trajectories and you know and we'll hear about it from the pathologist later but she had to admit that shootings are occurring from different places and different trajectories even on the same victim I think for Miss Murdoch and that was consistent with two different shooters so we had that idea of a you know all these financial crimes and you're going to kill your longtime wife and your youngest son and again it's a this is a 
you know, very wealthy generations of prosecutors and well-to-do lawyers in the low country and the idea that you're going to get caught with your hand in the cookie jar and then blast your loving wife and youngest son. So it's all playing out in the context of that where we have a two-shooter theory, um, which is interesting because obviously if you're going to do something like this, what's the need to pick up two different weapons to do it? I mean, has as a non-lawyer, what was that? Is that a question that people are talking about? I mean, it seems yeah. obvious to us, but I don't, I don't know. I totally think so. I think, you know, it just doesn't make sense given probably needing to do this quickly, needing to do this seamlessly in and out. Like if this was Alec Murdoch that was responsible for it, I just don't see why the two guns would be used unless to, I guess, be a distraction. Um, but I feel like in the heat of the moment, another distraction. Like another, another distraction from the distraction. Um, well, I think, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, I don't think the state has even attempted to try to answer that question at all. Mm-hmm. And we've done a lot of murder trials and I, I yet, we have yet to have one. I'm thinking right now where our client, whether he was guilty or innocent, was accused of shooting people with multiple guns, unless you had totally different crime scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, now we have that one case, Brian, the murder at the pool hall where then there was a police shootout totally different crime scenes, you know, an hour away, but in one kind of moment where a series of events, you're not gonna walk down mm-hmm. from your main house or drive down like Terminator in that like bar scene right. and using two different weapons. It'd be physically extremely hard, if not impossible to right. do. Right, isn't one of the guns very heavy? The well, you got, right, the, you got an assault rifle, which is a large gun, and then you got a shotgun, which is a large mm-hmm. gun. And you're not going to be able to aim and pull the trigger, but why would you? If, if you were, hypothetically, if you're Alex Murdoch and you've got this devastating plan to distract the world by killing your family, you take one gun down. It could be either one of those. Um, now, if, if you've got a shotgun that only has like two shots, like a lot of them do, well, maybe you just take the Blackout 300, which has a 30-round magazine, and you, and you don't need that second gun. So it, it totally lends itself to the real possibility that there's an accomplice, a second shooter. Now, whether that's an accomplice with Murdoch or right. Ozark in it. Yeah, Ozark in it. Yeah. Some other assailants coming out of the woods mm-hmm. um, to prove a point, then it just totally lends itself to two shooters, though. So Yeah, and you all, that's kind of what Paul Greer was discussing today. And you all cross-examined him before, right? Right, in December we had a double murder trial um, in front of Judge Newman. And that was the, you know, as far as I'm aware, it's the last time Paul Greer has testified as a state witness on firearms. And my brother Luke had a long, lengthy cross on him. And I think he even stole one of your your catchphrases to describe uh, the way a bullet moves through the air. Tell, tell us about that. Well, I don't know if he's still. I'll say he's happened to use it. I mean, obviously, Paul, if you're listening, you owe you owe us some money on that <laughs> on that trademark catchphrase. Well, he, he what he knows is that when a bullet is fired from a rifle barrel, which a lot of rifles are or pistols, you know, shotguns are not like that. Um, it's spinning like a tightly spiral football, and so that's why it stays straight and flat and is used for accuracy. And I did discuss that with him in our last trial, but I'm sure he had that in his mind before me. But but he was a fascinating and really powerful witness for the state um, in a lot of different ways. 
but really he produces a very lengthy, I mean, he produces a very, you know, 20 page, 10 page report. And I only have this because the defense um, included the report in one of their motions in pretrial, but it's fascinating. So what they're going to do is they're going to collect every weapon that could conceivably be involved in that crime at the crime scene. So they've, they've collected, you know, of interest, a blackout 300, um, rifle, and we know from testimony that there were three total purchased, two for the boys, Buster and Paul, um, and then Paul lost one because apparently he leaves his guns about and other things, and, and Alec bought him another one. So you had three in play, um, and you had lots of testimony about the two originals. And these are like $9,000 rifles, including accessories, had these thermal scopes so you could hunt pigs at night. Um, because pigs were a nuisance in the country, but the replacement one, they didn't go to the trouble buying the thermal scope. Um, and you did have a friend witness talk about that one, specifically being recalled being sighted in and shot at the house, at the side steps, across the field. And so, uh, you know, why it was so devastating was because in most cases, you're gonna collect evidence of shell casing then you're going to collect a gun, let's say the one blackout rifle in evidence, and you're going to do a lot of test fires with that gun, with test ammunition, and they shoot it into this cool little water tank, and they retrieve both projectiles and they retrieve shell cases, and you can compare those against the original. Um, here we're really comparing shell casings. They don't have a lot of projectiles that were really suitable to compare to the blackout 300 or anything that was found in, in victims or nearby that, I mean, they found some things that just, it was too damaged to really tell, but, so they tested that gun in evidence and it was inconclusive, okay? Now, in some cases, they'll try to say that an inconclusive gun could be, because technically, and I'm sorry if I'm getting long-winded here, but when I, when I cross-examined Paul Greer, who's a very savvy witness, you know, he will tell you that his test, test comparisons will yield four categories. You've got a match, let's say a shell casing, like micro, microscopically examine it to a test fire or a projectile. He's looking under a microscope and you get certain marks and striations and from the firing pin or from going through the rifling channel. It's either a match, which makes sense, meaning there's enough microscopic data of uniqueness to say that that gun fired that shell casing or projectile. It's either not a match, which is category number two, which means that there's just so much different data there that you know that it did not fire that gun. You've got inconclusive, which is what we've got here, at least for the blackout rifle in evidence compared. Right, he was, he was using that categorization to basically match things up in this case, was he not? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> so you got inconclusive, which if that was the only gun you had in evidence, because what he will say is it means we just don't know. It could be the gun that fired, or it might not be the gun that fired. So if that was the only gun, I guarantee you, they'll be leaning hard to say, well, right, right, right. you can't rule it out completely, right? No, I can't rule it out completely. And he would look at that's that. Right, that's right, that's right. And so, but because they're going after a theory of Alec Murdoch getting rid of evidence, getting rid of the other blackout gun, um, the replacement gun likely, they know they're not really trying to lean into it, but what the devastating problem was is that when they compared the casings, there's six casings found around Maggie Murdoch's body. 
when they compared that against the casings produced from the test fire to the gun and evidence, they said no. But when they compared it against other um, casings found throughout the property, what they said was a match was not that it was a test fired comparison, but just from entering a gun into a magazine, racking it, cycling it through, ejecting it, not that it was a test fire, but cycling through an ejection. Um, now let's say you loaded a rifle and you chambered around and, you know, at some point it's the, the, that part of it, not that it's a test fire, which is, I, I've never seen that before. I know, in a, in a circumstantial, in a mother load circumstantial case like we haven't seen, we've got even your standard ballistics testing is done in a circumstantial way. Right, so it's, it's obviously Brian and I are not gun experts, but we get firearms experts, but we get a lot of practice with experts like Paul Greer and we employ our own experts that, that try to teach us so we can be competent when we cross-examine somebody. And it's, it's very rare that you see that just simply through the cycling through mechanical um, machination, so to speak, versus actually being fired, that he's gonna say that what was around Maggie's body from mechanical ejecting and cycling is what is matching to, to casings throughout the property, like in the fire range field, and also specifically by the house on that stoop where that friend testified that they were test firing. So that was a very devastating blow the state landed. That means it's not a foreign gun. It's not some assailants, you know, from the cartel, you know, showing up <laughs> with a blackout. This is a Murdoch family gun is what they want to say. And, this, and Jim Griffin really went after that. Um, well, and, you know, the way I feel about Jim was yeah. I, you know, I, I thought maybe they would have their own firearms expert. And I've, I've said this before on some other outlets, but the way he attacked just Paul Greer's uh, scientific expertise, his field of expertise, he really was just trying to diminish him as an expert in this field and the field is all terrible as opposed to you know attacking him in some of the way that let us know they had an expert um, and you know to me that this made, made it seem like they couldn't really do much with Paul Greer we got this ultimate circumstantial shell casing on the property matches shell casings used in this case situation but I think like a lot of people just listening would say, they got the gun, they got the right, gun. Right, and Harry, right. is that the way it felt sometimes? Totally, and even some parts, Luke, when you were explaining, you know, it's like, so what like, What does that mean? And what, how could the defense use what was presented today, perhaps to, to make a point and say, that, well, this has no bearing on. Well, I will tell you that. Absolutely, take it You guys have opinion, Luke, do you? <laughs> And I have seen on like Twitter and other things the blackout in evidence. A jury could get confused and go, "Well, there's a blackout gun. It's in evidence." It. I hear something about some cartridges matching. Yeah. Right. I also hear inconclusive could mean it could be could not be. Right. So why can't we just say it's a gun? Math. So I love math. I'm not very good at it, but I can I can count to three. <laughs> um, and math allows us a lot of times to determine. I love knowing how much, what was a, how many shell casings are there in a crime scene that 
you know, you're not talking about a, a body next to a storm drain. You're talking about in a field or in a flat area where you know showcasings aren't going anywhere. So here we've got six showcasings collected around this Murdoch. You've got this one blackout rifle that I love to know, well, what, what was in the magazine or in the chamber at the time it was recovered? Mm -hmm. Are you talking about the one that's in evidence? The one that's in evidence, okay. right? because I don't want there to be any confusion that because it was inconclusive and maybe could have shot it, that some, some jury member or some audience person just thinks, hey, I think that's it. And where was that gun found? Was it like in the, because I feel like, you know, those pictures are circulating all over where it's the inside of, you know, the kennels or it's almost, you know, like a shed with all of these guns lined up. And it's, those are, I'm assuming. It's a, it's what they call a gun room. And yeah. everything I can tell is it's closer to the main house. Okay. Know. But so that wouldn't be anywhere near the kennel. So those guns no. would have had to be transported down to the kennels by whoever. Right. I mean, for someone to say, I mean, depending on your theory, random assailants could be bringing their own guns. Mm -hmm. that we know that Alec and others were known to leave guns in the trucks that were okay. parked around. Sure. Um, there was one gun that was stolen or misplaced from um, Paul that was never accounted for, right. theoretically. That, like if it was, I mean, if they're you know, saying it was maybe hidden there, because... Misplaced or stolen. Yeah. Right, and it could be, I mean, if I was a real clever bad guy, I'd be taking that gun when he's, and it got it in an unlocked car, and then maybe thinking I'll use his own gun to do a bad crime for my own reasons because it won't be traced back to me. But, I mean, that does take a certain level of planning. Right. Well, let's be honest. I mean, this case, the more we hear about it, especially from the pathologist today, I mean, I think there's going to be some level of planning involved here. I, I think the more I hear from the pathologist, and we'll talk about that, it seems less like, likely that it was a crime of passion and more of a calculated killing. Well, if I could just finish my thought. Yeah. <laughs> the reason why I can tell you that the blackouts... Oh, yeah, we're back with math now. <laughs> is math, which I'm not very good at, but I can finish math. math. Yeah. So you want to know how many showcasings there are, which is six. And then you want to know, well, what, what was recovered in the magazine of this rifle? And it says it right here on the report that the magazine for that Blackout 300 was recovered with 26 unfired cartridges. So that's in the magazine. Now, just very basic research and people that know guns like this, these magazines are 30-round magazines. Mm. So... The maximum capacity of this weapon would be 30, but you could rack one, chamber one, and then separately top off that magazine. So it could hold 31 fully topped off to the gills. And you see a lot of law enforcement that will keep their firearms topped off that way because you always want, especially if you're in law enforcement and you have a response, as many bullets as possible. So even if it was topped off to 31, so one in the chamber, mm. if that weapon was shot, six times you have 35 left in that magazine i'm sorry 25 left in that magazine not 26 mm. and the odds are that somebody who did this crime and then ran around in the panic he's not going to just take out the magazine to slip one in just to confuse investigators down the road so and if it wasn't topped off you have even you know fewer you know so it's if the math doesn't allow for that gun in the way the magazine was recovered with 26 rounds to have fired those six shots. It just doesn't allow it. Unless someone secretly, after the fact, 
cleverly inserted one, topped off the magazine, and reloaded it and stashed it. So, I mean, that was a... I don't recall Jim Griffin doing any math with Paul Greer, do you? He did not. I think... You know, I think he's fairly confident with State's theory is it's a different gun, it's not this gun, but he didn't do that math, um, unfortunately, and he didn't really pin down Paul Greer on what it means to be inconclusive. Because you, know, you don't want confusion with that jury, they could be confused, um, but I, the state is still going pretty hard, I think, at that concept that whoever did this crime got rid of bloody clothes, got rid of guns, you know, they're saying that Alec generated this alibi so therefore he's you know manufacturing a way to get out of this which would include getting rid of guns but it just because we never found the guns it's hard for them to fully point at him the way they want so but i, I found uh but you know objectively paul greer was a devastating witness he's got this super um soft-spoken kind of voice and you know you can always tell someone is a professional witness i mean they've been trained mm -hmm to be a witness, to be impactful for a jury, is the, the lawyer will cross-examine you, and number one, they're a runaway witness. They won't answer your question yes or no, because they know that's, that's the opposite of what they should be doing. They get taught at their SLED uh, witness school to then turn to the jury, not, not answer the lawyer's questions directly, but turn to the jury, explain, extrapolate in a very full way that doesn't exactly answer your question, but helps push their theory. And you know, they get trained like that, they think they're being non-responsive to you while explaining whatever they want to, whatever point they want to get across, looking in the eyes of the jury. In my, in my trial experience, by myself and with you, I always found when you got a professional expert witness like that that is doing that, I found myself wandering away from the jury to make the expert have to look at me and then very noticeably look over here to the jury, so it's very awkward for him, but you know. Well, his demeanor is very good, and it's powerful, and he is smart, but um, you really have to pick apart these things, and he's, he's gone out on a limb, I think, I think Jim Griffin agrees about matching marks made from just cycling through, um, not a test fire, not, we're not talking about the firing pin. That's, that's classically what we see, or marks that you can microscopically compare um, when the firing pin is struck to ignite that bullet. We just don't see that here. We're talking about other marks that he's saying to the exclusion of all other guns manufactured in that same process somehow that those marks you'll get from entering the chamber and being cycled through. So I think that's a stretch and I, I would think we would have to see some type of counter firearms expert that hopefully would cast some doubt on that. I know, Brian, I know you think that... Um, I just, the way his questioning was lined up, it was meant to diminish the field. It wasn't kind of setting a trap for Paul Greer to then have answered by his own defense expert, but maybe maybe that was just the way, you know, Jim Griffin was feeling in the moment, um, and they've got somebody laying in wait to, to diminish or contradict completely the, the, the gun points that the state's made across. So, speaking of marks, what what's going on with like the blood splatter and the lack of it? Obviously, I know you had 
your tagline, if he's wearing a bloody shirt, he's guilty. <laughs> he's and, and if he's bloody, he's guilty. Yeah. If he's clean, he's guilty. Yeah, where was... is that? Where, when are we going to talk about you know, the trajectories and what that means and how, you know, why hasn't that been presented? What, Luke, what do you have here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been waiting for this for a long time, and I, there's another, this, this pre-trial motion, my defense, and mm, uh, math and reading, is like 65 pages. And I don't know, so they filed, um, the defense filed a motion, what they called for sanctions, and this is publicly available, I'm not revealing anything, but they were so upset about the Attorney General's blood spatter expert that they got from out of state, all the way in like Oklahoma or somewhere, um, to great expense, and I think it cost like ten, eleven thousand dollars in taxpayers' do dollars, um, because the reason why they got so upset is because, as we heard today, through um, Special Agent Nguyen, who was kind of a serology expert, meaning blood, an expert who deals in blood and collection and testing. You got some presumptive tests, like is it blood, probably? And then you've got some confirmation tests, meaning it's definitely blood. So we heard from her, and we also heard from the expert on DNA, basically that there is no human blood on Alex Murdoch's white t-shirt. And so, what did Nguyen say was initially presumptive? Certain parts were initially presumptive. It was almost like the, the baby test, like, right. you know, just kind of get get the, our interest peaked and let's send on to DNA. Right, and so the reason why the defense filed a motion for sanctions is, well, and you heard from Agent Wynn, they used something called LVC to test for the presence of blood, and it just kind of destroyed the ability for this shirt to ever be used again for really any DNA testing or blood testing it really it, it, the defense took a big beef with that because of course to have a proper investigation and due process they want to have their own expert look at this shirt and it was basically by the time the sled got done with it it was basically useless but the, the reason why they're really mad is because all of their tests that and you heard from the expert the dna expert that they're once once she got done testing it zapata zapata that there's no human blood on that shirt. And we, we talked about DNA, and it's all gonna end up being like touch DNA. And the defense lawyer, um, Dick's uh, lawyer, uh, Barber, Barber did a really good job giving a calculator to the DNA expert and making her you know count the cuttings from the shirt and do the math on it, had 74, and then you know, how many of those again had uh, blood on them? Zero. And so I thought that was pretty, that was right. good, some of the first really good trial lawyer tactics right. to really make a witness, your, own the witness in a way that they can't really run from. The math doesn't lie. And then he made her look at her own research, which the prosecutor, Creighton Waters, actually asked her to do, well, is there any way that you can somehow this prior LVC testing um, cause them to not have an accurate, you know, blood test on this? And she was forced to admit that 94% of the time they can still be accurate. But so the defense is really mad because they, they spent all this money sending, even though SLED had this testing that said, we don't have any human blood on this shirt, okay? Which baffled the minds of folks. If you're, if you're the assailant shooting with shotguns at close range, which we heard today from pathologists was three feet or less, shooting your wife at close range on at least two of those wounds, three feet or less, Common sense, now whether it's true expert science, would you expect to see some blood on you from a high velocity weapon? 
And so they, knowing that there was no blood in their own testing, they sent it to this blood spatter expert. Now, who again told them to do that? Uh, well, was it great Greg Waters? Well, he definitely, at least what we heard today, had asked the DNA um, expert to provide a memo of research about how it's possible that maybe the prior LBC testing would have messed up the blood testing. But the state, assumably from the prosecution or some lead investigator, forced all this to be sent to the expert, this Dr. Bevel, but they never told him per their own memos that there was no, they already knew there was no blood on that. So they're making him do blood spatter analysis. And he, he's not testing for blood. He just gets a shirt and pictures of what could be spatter. But he's, he's not ever being told that they knew there was no blood. And so he's spending all his time and tax dollars. And what was his conclusion? Well, he wrote an initial report that, you know what, I don't, I don't, think, I don't see any blood on here, and I don't think necessarily an assailant would have blood. Well, the, the state didn't like that, at least per Dick Arpillion's memo, his motion. And so they're like, we need to show you the shirt. And, he, and <laughs> so they, they flew it out there, all, two sled agents in a shirt, and gave it to him. And now he enhanced it and photoshopped it. And he's like, oh, now I can see. I see a hundred instances of blood spatter. A hundred instances. A hundred. Man, this shooter just got spatter all over him. And not once did the state ever actually tell him, well, our, old, our own slave people know that there's no blood on this shirt at all. So they kind of had this expert waiting in the wings to do blood spatter testimony and talk about hundred spots of blood and what that might mean in relation to the shooting. And unless he pops up as a witness, which I don't think he will. Because, I mean, Creighton would have opened with that. Right. That would have been huge for opening. You're going to hear mm. from this fancy expert. They've totally gone away from that. And I don't know if they just knew it was bad or if this 65-page motion scared them off. So, I mean, it is entitled motion for sanctions. Sanctions. I mean, they're asking for the wit the witness to not be able to testify. And then they're also asking for any monetary damages that may be awarded by the judge. But I just think we're not going to see the witness because they've gone this angle of, well, if he's getting rid of guns, well, then we think he mm -hmm. can get rid of his clothes, too. And that's why we heard about the housekeeper and you know some pants that were on the floor let's, that she's let's, all right, well, let's okay. stick to what we're going to be talking about next <laughs> i mean luke i know you like to talk but we got a lot to talk about okay. here uh, <laughs> hannah what are we getting into now so aside from the but the blood <laughs> blood spatter which we haven't maybe heard as much about we've heard a lot about the cell phones in this case whether it be from the the steps that have been tracked the orientation the phone all the way to snapchat or call logs text messages all of those things what do you think has been the most valuable piece of information for both sides the for, well, for the state and i think i know for the state but for the defense what do you think is helpful well i'll start from the state's perspective and mm -hmm. you know i said on another outlet that, you know, our cell phones, really modern day iPhones or any kind of smartphone or a, a spy in your pocket that mm -hmm. captures all of your interactions, your movements even, you know, what you say, what you do. It, um, and, you know, obviously the big, I mean, in a huge circumstantial case, mm -hmm. the smoking gun for the state so far has been Alec Murdoch saying he wasn't at the Kimmels right, right before the time of the shooting right. and then getting that Snapchat video that mm -hmm. Paul sent to his friends, and then you have all of his very credible friends, 
I being Mr. Murdoch's voice, mm -hmm. stone cold at the kennel and busted in a lie. Yeah. I mean, that was, he, that was the first major lie, even before the, that was really the first lie that was revealed to the jury mm -hmm. because all financial crimes evidence was still being weighed by Judge Newman. And, uh, and that was really the first lie that the jury really became aware of because all these very credible folks were, like, were saying, yeah, I know him. And mm -hmm. that's definitely his voice. And they'd already gotten that video in and the state really just ripped him apart on that issue. So the state would say, he's a liar. Why is he lying about the death of his, his wife and his child? Unless he did it circumstantially, here's a big chunk for that case. And what's the tiny moral of that story? Don't talk to police. Don't talk to police. Even if you're an affluent that. country lawyer. Who used to be a prosecutor. Who may be a victim, but who also certainly, if he's guilty, wanted to be portrayed as a victim. Had he just said, look, I'm too distraught. I don't want to talk about this. I know it may seem ridiculous, but I'm just sending any questions you have to my numerous lawyers around here. He would not have been busted in that inconsistency. Now, we, in, in our office, we have a lawyer called the uh, STFU letter mm -hmm. that we send out <laughs> right. repeatedly. And it's just a form letter that says the same thing. And I think we all know what STFU means, but. Yeah, I think Shut the fuck up. Mark is explicit. Explicit language. Shut the fuck up. And we send it to law enforcement on behalf of our clients, asserting the right mm -hmm. to remain silent, mm -hmm. their right to counsel. And, and Alec Murdoch needed to do that that day because, right. for whatever reason, why he lied. And he's going to have to explain that when he testifies. Right. And he will testify. It's happen. Yeah, it has um, to happen. Unless he's trying to protect himself and Buster, and he's Ozarking it. <laughs> well, if he's Ozarking it, then he's gonna have to. I mean, he's gonna have. I mean, he's a. Here's the thing. Back to the motive. While we're talking about Ozark theory, and then we'll let you get to the the defense cell phone perspective, which is so interesting. But like this, from my understanding of him personally and his family, I mean, you talk about the legacy of the Murdoch family. You talk about. You know, you know, Father Randolph. We talk about mm -hmm. you know the the patriarch before that and the patriarch before that, and they are all about legacy. And so, I mean, generational legacy. Four, five, six generations of Murdochs basically being the number one family in the area. And so, it makes zero sense to distract momentarily from your financial wrongdoings at your firm yeah. to then blow away. Your legacy, mm -hmm. blow away your son. You got he's got two sons in a, as far as we can tell, a, you know, the, the patriarchy of the Murdochs. And he's gonna just kill one along with the, his beloved wife to distract momentarily, which then brought about the scrutiny of the world on his finances. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. Doesn't fly, doesn't fly, but right. so obviously the Snapchat video Big, that was a big win for the big, state. First lie revealed, big win for the state. And, put, and puts him there, objectively, very close in time before Two. the murders. Assuming you believe the state timeline, which is that the murders are based upon phone activity ceasing, mm -hmm. text messages not being read. I mean, right. we watched the pathologist today. She's not giving a specific time of death. Mm. The timeline is based on the cell phone. Yeah. And they're painting them as like avid, especially Paul, just never had his phone out of his hand. And when he's not answering calls, and so if, if you want to go with that, that Snapchat video is super close before that. 
almost to the point where if it's not Alec as the killer, he would have had to have like walked off, maybe made some plans to go visit his, his mom. And it was almost like the shooters were like waiting around, like maybe waiting for him to leave so they could send a message and kill yeah. his family. Ozark. Um, or, Ozark. or, you know, an Ozark type thing. So, but. For the defense, though. For the defense, the thing that stood out to me, I mean, obviously the cell phone provides this timeline of the Snapchat, but also him traveling up the road and when he's making calls and texting. Because the original story was, you know, I, was, I took a nap after dinner and I wanted to. Obviously, my dad went in the hospital that day, so I just texted, hey, I'm going to go see my, my mom, check on her, you know, call me babe, all that stuff. And the state would say he's making these phone calls after he's done this horrendous crime, you know, taking Maggie's cell phone. Um, and the thing that if I, it stuck with me that if I could whisper something to the defense that I'm sure I don't have to, I'm sure they would uh, memorialized it, maybe even got a tattoo of it so they don't forget. Is yeah. that the state's theory is they started really getting into the minutiae of steps of a phone. Because our phones can tell when we're moving like steps, but if we're in a car, it doesn't recognize steps. If you got your phone in your pocket or a cup holder, you're not moving the same way to recognize steps. So they want to say that he's killed his family, he's got Maggie's phone, he's trying to think about what to do with it. They know exactly when he cranks up his car mm -hmm. per what we later hear, the GM data. They know when his car is in park and not park. But at the exact same time that his phone is registering steps, which would be right before he gets in his car, per the state's own theory, her phone is not registering steps. They want to say he's got both phones, that he's the one that would have tossed her phone half just like he has two guns, right? Just like he had two guns, like Terminator in the bar scene. But it make the, Did you get that reference? The, yeah, state, yeah. the, the state cell phone expert was like, yeah, that one person could not have had those phones at the same time. I would have written it down on the blackboard, but they will be reminded of that in closing. So it doesn't make sense. There had to be another person. He didn't have her phone. At the same time, he's walking with his own phone, cranking up the car, sending the, you know, sent the text, like, call me. And then he calls her phone. And right at that time, her phone has a, like a, a turning of it. I forget what they call it in the moment. It was like a directional. Yeah, yeah well, it um, changes orientation from orientation. vertical to, or from horizontal to vertical. Right. And it tries to recognize, like, the face. Because, right. you know, your phone can open, unlock right. with your face, but it doesn't unlock. Yeah. So it's. That's right. So. Yes. So the defense supported a great theory that he's innocent, of course. He's on the road, getting ready to go to his mom's house. That the real killer has the phone. Mm -hmm. He calls that phone. It turns. He looks at it. Maybe freaks out, like, "Oh God, the husband's calling!" And tosses out the window of, let's say, a moving car that's already up the road because that phone is found about a half mile up the road. So you can't not be registering steps if you're holding that phone. That's to me, a very strong thing. They were a nugget amongst this mountain of technical data. Do you think that was, and I know, I know just looking at Twitter, and one of my favorite um, reporters is Avery Wilkes, and if I ever yeah, have to, if, if we ever miss some of the live testimony because, oh, we've got a law practice to run, I go, <laughs> I go to Twitter, I check out Avery's uh, you know, tweets about it. It's mega threads. Mega thread, and so John Conrad, I think, was bringing out that information from the state and you know it's tough stuff and we've tried cases with John before but it, it can be 
kind of mind-numbing, but do you think the defense made the point that you're making right now to the jury in the moment? I think they did. Maybe, maybe not how I would have made it, but it was enough where it, it certainly was key. It stood out. Avery, of course, caught it. And that expert had to say no. The same person was not holding those two phones at the same time. And I mean, it, it, to me, it was like, the ceiling of that courthouse fell in when that was said. And of course I'm biased and I'm looking for those nuggets, but it, to me it debunks the whole theory that he alone, Alec Murdoch, was holding both phones after killing his family. He was certainly, I mean, now if they said, if they could prove he was working with an accomplice, perhaps the accomplice had the phone. Um, but so far we haven't been, been proven that. And Luke, as you and I know, when you're in the, in the meat of the state's case, it often feels from a defense perspective that you're just taking body blows. You're just getting, they're bringing all their experts, they're bringing their data, and you almost feel like you can just get through that without being totally knocked to the ground, that you still have a, you're still in the fight. But do you think, Luke Canada, that was the first like real kind of mark that the defense had, they could call their own, their first little body blow on that? I thought that was the second cut. The first cut being Dick Carpullian getting out of their lead crime scene investigator that based on trajectories, it, it's consistent or could be consistent with two shooters. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's right. Cut number one. This is cut number two. This is more than a cut to me, um, but call it what you want. This was a slash. <laughs> it was two guns Because that one little piece of data debunks what I assume that the state's trying to prove is he's the only killer. He's covering up, he's manufacturing an alibi, he's getting rid of evidence, and so it just it doesn't work if he's holding both phones. So that was a big blow that I'm sure they will hold on to. You know, the jury's not taking notes, but it was enough where I think it should they should at least recall it. <clears throat> and so something else that I think has perhaps worked in the defense this case versus the state is this blue raincoat or blue tarp it kind of reminds me of is it a blue and black dress or a yellow gold dress kind of splits the room it's a blue herring <laughs> is it a famous blue raincoat for our older watchers out there the old Leonard Cohen song uh, yeah you don't get that one yeah 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 just that one the Terminator I got but that but, one alright so GSR um all right. Yeah, we do have the, the blue raincoat, and this is all about, you know, probably the most compelling, at that point in the trial, mm -hmm. lay witness, fact witness, which is uh, Miss Smith. Yes. Um, and, you know, she was very interesting because she knew the family. It was one of the first real witnesses that had kind of intimate understanding of their routines, their habits, you know, what... You know, how, how was Alec Murdoch? Well, she, he was, you know, normal. He was fidgety. But at first, it kind of came about like he was nervous, fidgety. And then on the cross, it was, well, he's kind of always that. He's kind of high energy. He's fidgety, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then we started getting into this timeline. Yeah. You know, that kind of got the state kind of alluding to another lie that he was trying to insert in the case. Because she's on the stand saying 15, 20 minutes. He was there at... You know, he, he came at the mother's house um, initially, and we'll get to the Renko. This is how her testimony came in. And I one thing that I thought was very significant, you know, she, he comes in once, the night of the murder, um, he's in that 
outfit that mm-hmm. everyone kind of recognizes now, the white you know, shorts, the, right. the cloth shoes and the white shirt. He's acting fidgety, but he's you know normal-ish when he gets in the house. He sits with his mother. You know, they were watching a television show that the that Miss Smith is very much familiar with. But did you guys know this that he called? Now it was a little irregular because he never comes at that time of night. And I think the defense could say, well, it was a little bit of a regular time because his father is you know was in the hospital. And so he was checking on his mama when you know dad was in the hospital. And so that can explain that. But have you guys picked up the fact that the second time he comes, some eight days later, so right. the first time was the night of, and that's the timeline, and we're talking about the alibi, and, if it, and the timeline can fit in, and that can be debated. He calls Miss Smith to say, I'm here, let me in. And then the second time, he, with the, the blue raincoat or tarp, whatever, he just come, comes in at 6.30 in the morning, just walks on in the house. So, yeah, like so I've always thought it's interesting that if, if I were the prosecution, I would say he knows his mama's house. He mm-hmm. knows Miss Smith. He's just going to knock on the door and walk in. Why is he going to sit outside and call? If I were the state, I'd be like, because he was trying to establish he was there. Yeah. He's trying to do, he knows the phone records are going to show right. that he called to be let in at a certain time. Mm-hmm. I don't think the state's touched that, but I would be all over that, um, that little issue. But anyway, so he's acting normal, whatever the house, 15, 20 minutes is what she says. There's a lot of, you know, kind of emotional um, responsiveness from her about, you know, fear, fear of him and maybe he's making her lie, this kind of stuff. But bottom line is when he comes back, back to the raincoat eight days or so later, he comes in, walks in the door at 630. He's got, you know, what she describes as a blue tarp, um, you know, like a cover a car with, you very, know? very clearly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's. She's a, a woman with life experiences. She's, you know, certainly knows what a tarp looks like. It was all balled up. Took it upstairs, you know, and she even said, or took it, you know, I don't go up there. You know, I've been, in, I've been working for three years or whatever, and I, I don't go to that upstairs part, but like two times in my life. Well, it was like laid out on a chair. She, yeah, she did observe it laid out in a chair, but- um, The tarp. The tarp. Okay. And so that, you know, so we got this battle of the blue vinyl. The state was trying to go into its blue, its vinyl. Um, Jim Griffin did a good job of ripping up a tarp dramatically and kind of getting her to identify that as something that what she would have seen. Mm-hmm. And then the state kind of rolled over her with the, uh, you know, blue raincoat picture of it. Uh huh. I mean, it got very muddy. It got so muddy. Um, and we can get to her as a witness in her credibility. Not the tarp, but the, state, the state's insinuation that yeah. the raincoat was a tarp. So we, we, <laughs> right. We can, so not actual one. We're talking about, but we're, talking, some, but we're here to talk about GSR, but like we'll talk about her credibility later. It'll get, she it got ripped apart on both sides. Um, but basically what they, they go looking for based on that blue item, mm-hmm. um, they get a search form of the home. They do see a blue tarp. Uh, and the search warrant was looking for a tarp. Right? right. It wasn't looking for a raincoat. So in this closet, they find a blue tarp that was folded up neatly. And then they find a raincoat that was kind of messily put in there. Didn't even, didn't even so, grab a test of tarp. So they don't worry about the tarp <laughs> that, that Ms. Smith is talking about, or she's using the terminology tarp. They go test this raincoat, in, you know, that is, there's a lot of information about what size is it, and I, you know, I think they're going to try to say it's you know, that it would be Mr. Randolph, his jacket, not the much larger um, out in Murdoch, but 
They test it, and what do they find? Well, they find a shit ton of GSR on the inside of it, and absolutely no DNA linking Alex Murdoch to that. So, you know, again, this is a hunting area. Very rural, hunting hogs, hunting deer, hunting ducks, turkeys, and these people were avid hunters. So, you know, I think the defense was able to land some points and prove, we can't prove it was Alex's. Um, it was pretty clear he came in with a tarp, and I'm sure if he testifies, he'll explain what was going on eight days later, you know. But they, the state is trying to float the theory that he's hiding guns, rifles and shotguns in a coat right, and whisking them away upstairs. Eight days later. Eight days later from some other location that would explain why it has so much gunshot residue on, on the interior. Now that could work. But it also could work that this is a long time, rainy day, duck shooting <laughs> raincoat. Mm. Or, or that you laid your raincoat on top of your shotgun on the back of your truck after you went hunting. And, and the GSR expert had to admit, those are also ways that you would get GSR in those locations. So, And this was his mama's home where his father lived up until the point where he, he was hospitalized and, and eventually passed away. But yeah, and then the, I think the defense is making another big point about the raincoat or the blue, what do you say, blue herring? As opposed blue to red herring. That no one ever, no one could put him in that. There's no family picture of him in that raincoat. I imagine if there were, that we would have seen it up as, as a, an exhibit. There was no one saying anything about him. And, and then the maid who did their laundry had never seen that raincoat in her life. And okay. Pretty much ID'd it as not being his, that he wore 2X. So, bottom line, there's tons of GSR on the raincoat. There's other GSR on, I think, Alec Murdoch's, some of his clothing from the time. He was, he was holding a, a shotgun. Right. right. And, so, and there's some in his car, like the steering wheel and the mm -hmm. seatbelt latch, but that, that doesn't, the GSR will stay until it's wiped off or rained off. And so if he's an avid hunter himself and he's hunting or firing guns and driving his Suburban, I mean, you're gonna have it there. That's not really consequential, so. Yeah. But, so another, is that even circumstantial in this case? I guess if you're creating waters and you're closing on the blue raincoat, are you making a meal out of it? I think you have to, but I think if the jurors were listening, um, people know the difference between a tarp and a raincoat, no matter how much uh, Mr. Metters in that direct really kind of insinuated her words a little bit. And it was artful, is one word for it, uh, to kind of just assume facts that aren't necessarily what a witness has said and kind of go with that. Yeah. But he's a very experienced prosecutor and he knew that was key. And the question is, did the defense do enough to really point out what she actually said and, and recommit her to what her mm -hmm. testimony is? And I think probably did a fair job at that. Um, but you know, the juries haven't taken a lot of information, yeah. but I think it was pretty clutch for the defense that, okay, let's say he's touching all over this. This is his, roll up getaway jacket to stash all his guns but why does he not have any dna on it yeah so we got we got we got tons we got three or so different dna profiles on his shirt we got different you know it's from touch dna we got touch dna even to include based on three alleles under maggie's left fingernail to the uh gardener 
but like they can't get any DNA off a jacket that was supposed to be used to stash guns and would have been heavily held. So I don't think, mm. I don't think that's working out so well for the state. So touching back on like her credibility as a witness, I know that there is a GoFundMe that people are talking a lot about and certain anonymous donations and, and all, all of that. Can you all speak to kind of what that means? And I, I, you're always allowed to intact, attack the integrity of law enforcement's investigation into a case. Um, there's a great case called Cowsby Whitley that allows us to do that. Defense lawyers, any witness's motive to misrepresent the truth, to lie, can be explored on cross-examination. So if, you know, the thing about Ms. Smith, since we're talking about her, Michelle Smith, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of the national audience will look at her and be like, well, she's telling her story. She's up here. She's emotional. She's compelling. But what was happening for the past you know, years behind the scenes, ever since she kind of got on to, onto the investigative radar because she got into a fender bender and started talking to the officer that was investigating a car accident about, you know, what did you see? What's, what you know about that you know, Murdoch investigation? Well, let me tell you what. I know, like he came in with this tarp and that got sent straight to SLED's ears and they started doing the search warrants. But think about her, and you mentioned the GoFundMe, mm -hmm. that crushes her. I mean, it happened after her testimony. Yeah. But, it, you know, she, I don't even know what the, the monetary value of the GoFundMe is. And I think it happened because people were like, oh my gosh, she's, there's so much of a national eye on this. She's emotional. Mm -hmm. We feel sorry for her, you know, for whatever reason, just because maybe this whole thing has been traumatic and she's been ripped apart by both sides. But okay. as soon as you start paying witnesses in a case, yeah. even, I would say, even post-testimony, mm -hmm. what, what a defense lawyer, what I and Luke would certainly be doing in this case is raising that through witnesses. You can't just do it through any witness, but you can bring it through the lead investigator. Are you aware that she's been paid uh, a lot of money um, for her testimony? Well, I don't know, it's not for I mean, some, someone threw some, okay. But you, you understand that she was accepted money and right. she could still be called as a witness in this case. Sure. I mean, uh, Dick Arputlian and Eric Griffin, there's such debate about, between the parties, the defense and the state about what she said. Is she identifying that? vinyl item as a raincoat or was it the tarp that she clearly identified like mm -hmm. no one even knew to the extent that they were they were after the day of her testimony they were getting her transcript and the, the reason you do that is so that you can either close on it yeah. and have it as a demonstrative of what she actually said or you put her back up in the defense's case and guess what now she's accepted ten thousand dollars or whatever it is and more than that and so her credibility is shot right. Could be well, they, were, they were trying to get the transcript in the moment because they were saying the raincoat was irrelevant it shouldn't be talked about because she hasn't said raincoat right and of course the state's like no she did sure she did mm -hmm. but like brian said she could be called in the defense just to say how much money did you get for your testimony well, what do you mean you got to go find me that now has 25 grand in it thank you very much and it does show bias under Rule 608CC. Now, they did have an immediate opportunity to flesh that out through attorney Mark Tinsley, Woo. but they did not want to touch him. He Woo. was a hot potato. I think he uh, donated it's not like a live grenade. Live grenade. Uh, <laughs> yeah, $1,000. He donated $1,000, and he was like the next witness or very close in time <laughs> up. 
And he was just ready to talk about everything. And, and they got a taste of him um, in camera hearing. Thank goodness they did, because he would have ripped them apart right. if they had not done in camera with them. So that was smart. That was a very smart thing they did, because I think he was prepared to really um, land points of his own and has his own axe to grind, uh, having represented the Mallory Beach family. But back to Miss Smith, though, you know, your average person looking at this trial thinks she's incredible and emotional, but mm -hmm. she would have, from the from time she told that officer that she saw a tarp or whatever it was, but the officer that investigated her traffic accident and she got spoken to by SLED, she would have been interviewed by SLED, she would have then um, probably given a written statement, she then would have gone before the state grand jury and had sworn testimony under oath, and then you know the defense counsel who was examining her said, how many times have you met with SLED before this trial in, in the past couple of weeks, you know, I think she says them like three times. So it just shows, you know, these witnesses, you know, what, in such a big case like this, I mean, they, not only are they feeling the eyes of the whole nation mm. and maybe the world on them, but they're also being told information by law enforcement. Um, you know, you've got the 30 to 40 minute timeline that she's initially giving and then she's saying, you know, 15 to 20, and I think, Luke, you were talking about this the other day on another outlet, but, like, they, they get that information. Are you sure it's that? Because we got some data here from the phones that's suggesting, you know, he called at this time, and, and they start, I'm not saying they get told what to say, but they kind of get, get made known what the evidence is to help their testimony. And that's part of preparing a witness, and you always want them to be telling the truth. But they get a sense of what maybe the state's truth is as a state witness. Right. And so, I mean, it can it can take a, a witness trying to do the right thing and turn her into a credibility matzo ball. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she was definitely uh, very compelling. Um, the housekeeper, when she was speaking about, you know, days or I guess it was the day after the murder and some some of the things that she noted and presented were you know dishes clean food packed away clothes maybe laid out differently uh, can you all speak to kind of the significance of that well the big points they were trying to land on her I think a couple things number and again she's a witness that knows about the routines and their habits um, you know I thought it was pretty interesting that they elicited out of her that um, Maggie was, this was coming through this witness, that Maggie was basically kind of told to come home by Alec Murdoch. Okay. Um, she was at the Edisto Beach House, right. and so the housekeeper testified that, you know, she was maybe sounded a little bit annoyed that having to come home. I thought that was pretty interesting. The state would have, you know, again, it's another little... A little building block to a circumstantial evidence case. Well, he wanted her to come home that night. Otherwise, she wouldn't be there. You know, they also talked about um, the fact that she can identify this shirt that he left for work that day. And she's kind of vividly recalling, you know, tucking in his collar. And so this is the shirt that's in question. Where's the shirt? So she's another person that basically can identify, well, that's the shirt he was wearing. Where is it now? I'm, I'm less concerned about you know, her getting there the next day, and she, you know, she had been told what had happened already, um, and, you know, law firm partners there at the house, law enforcement are there at the house that night, family, friends, and anyone that's had a big tragedy happen, you know, everyone comes rushing to your aid, and they're cleaning, they're cooking, they're 
doing a bunch of stuff. So, you know, when she says things are different, the pots that are normally there for me to clean up were all put away, the food was packed away. I'm not so much concerned about that. Luke, right. um, she had some discoveries, I think, in the showers. Yeah, I mean, she recalls seeing some khaki pants, which are a lot like the earlier tick their Snapchat video of him out by the tree that's bending over. So he's wearing the blue shirt that looks like what she described as he wore earlier to work with a sport jacket on top. He's wearing the khaki pants. And so they're trying to insinuate he took a shower, he cleaned up, the pants were on the floor. It seemed like there had been a shower taking place, but she vividly notes I didn't see any blood on the pants. Um, and she just, you know, so it's not, it wouldn't be beyond the pale to think that a grieving man like this the next day at some point would have taken a shower. Um, and she talks about Maggie's clothes being laid out that she knows from doing, you know, being with her so much that she apparently doesn't wear underwear to bed under her night clothes and that there's the night clothes were there, but so was the underwear. And I think that some little point was trying to be laid like it was a staged kind of laying out of the clothes. Hmm. Um, I caught that. And then, um, you know, she doesn't see blood. And she did also get in some evidence over objection from the defense about, well, Maggie told me, she took me into this room and told me about some of their financial concerns, but like, yeah, I was there to say, judging what and does it fit this financial distraction theory or is it just like, you know, people spending too much on certain things. Every couple has financial concerns. She didn't say, I think he's gonna kill me. She didn't say, I think I'm getting a divorce. Mm -hmm. Nothing like that. So it was just kind of just a, a stretch to put a little more of that evidence in a bucket. So she was interesting. Again, one of these people that knows them the best, knows their routines, you know, still, but she also testified that they had a great relationship. He's a loving guy, a loving father. And so it really, doesn't really help them with this monstrous guy who would be in the mindset to kill his wife and son. I can't think of many people that have gone up on the stand that haven't echoed those same things. Just painting him as this Nobody. super nice guy and <clears throat> super generous and I mean, loving to his family. Every witness that had a, a little cut for the state in this fight mm -hmm. um, you know, the Paul's friends that identified his voice on the Snapchat video, they also said right. he was like a father figure to us. Yeah. I never saw any problems between he and, mm -hmm. and Maggie or he and Paul or Buster. Then we got the financial witnesses that are all, it's all terrible stuff, lying and mm -hmm. stealing. And, but they're all, the paralegals also saying, but yeah, he didn't do anything for anyone. Right. I mean, he was just that kind of guy. And yet they're talking about these terrible lies and this fraud committed on, on, people mm -hmm. that's such a, of a big financial magnitude but they're all like yeah he basically gave the shirt off his back you know he would just always do helpful things for everyone so it's it is a double-edged sword because it like even these witnesses here the housekeeper and the mm -hmm. and the caretaker of his mother are like yeah but he was just a good guy yeah um so getting it kind of now that the this defense no longer has to through the rules of evidence not try to open the door to a character case to, to prevent the financial mm -hmm. um, crimes from coming in. Now they, every witness that they know they can get this out of, yep, he would, he was good. He would never hurt a fly. He would, they, can, they can kind of say that stuff without any repercussion. Yeah. So that all 
brings us to today, and I know that we kind of already touched on a few points that were presented today, but just going, you know, maybe a little bit more into detail, you, you know, we had jurors removed for COVID, we had SLED um, agent win, we had a DNA analyst, kind of talk us through, give us an overview today, some of the most important things that you think were presented, the implications of those things. Well, I'll start with the first news of the day, which was the two of the jurors mm -hmm. tested positive for COVID and have been released. And I think that wasn't immediately clear to Creighton Waters and Dick Harpoolian because they were trying to encourage Judge Newman to keep them around. And maybe it sounded like, like no one wants a mistrial. No one wants to be in week three of a, the biggest double murder trial in the nation going on right now and have to even contemplate doing this all over again. So. You can tell it in the very early morning today when court started, both Creighton and Dick were trying to encourage Judge Newman um, to maybe we shouldn't just release these two jurors. Let's kind of keep them involved and like, let's, or maybe let's just take a break. Let's just take a break and see. I, I think both sides would have been happy with a break. Mm -hmm. A couple days to assess, you know, are any of our jurors getting ill? And then that was when Judge Newman very clearly said, no, they are released. And we're going to bring in two new alter alternates, which means now three alternates have been used. We only have three left. And, you know, in the double murder trial that Luke and I did in December with Judge Newman, we did have uh, one of our jurors tore, uh, three quarters through the way of the double murder trial kind of gave a note to Judge Newman and said, listen, I want to talk to everybody. I think I have a conflict. And we're sitting here at the oh, end gosh. of a week-long trial. And he was becoming aware uh, that all of a sudden he knew one of the victims. And it was, a, like this case, it was a horrific, um, bloody scene where, he, honestly, he didn't really um, realize that he knew the victims until he saw them in the pathology um, photographs, which were, and he, it all just kind of came together. And he said, I think I know these people. Um, and Judge Newman excused him, rightfully so. But, you know, Judge Newman's not trying to... He, he's always been a judge that likes to move cases efficiently. He's mm -hmm. not trying to, you know, have any kind of delays at all. And so even though we're down to um, three alternates left, we've got three that were not in the hot seat, not in the hot seat. You know, the way Judge Newman looks at it is that they've taken their oath. They're all been paying attention and it's time to get to work. So, but it's just something that we have to deal with. But if we do get, you know, through, the, through this week, We'll have the state's case, more likely than not. Next week, maybe we'll start with a defense case, but if we have a COVID outbreak and we lose jurors, yeah, we're in trouble. We could be in real trouble. But, but yeah, I mean, we'll talk about DNA right out of the gates today. Well, we yeah, had and we DNA. had Agent Wynn, and she was kind of set up for the DNA, and serology is all about blood, um, and she's doing a lot of testing presumptive testing and then confirmatory testing for blood. So a lot of things you want to see if there's a presumption that it could be blood, but it doesn't always mean that it will actually be confirmed as blood. So she's going through all the samples um, and looking at basically the shotgun, his car, his steering wheel, uh, his shirt, his shoes. And at the end of the day, you know, we got some things that ended up never being confirmed, like his shirt, which we've already talked about a lot. Um, that maybe she thought we're going to test for blood, shoes. Well, the DNA expert, not to get ahead of the serologist, 
said there is no human blood on that shirt. Correct. Correct. So, I mean, that was a big deal today. And that was actually a huge deal. That was part of, you know, defensive strategy with, and just talking about the directive, you know, DNA agent or a DNA expert is normally a heavy hitter in the state's case. And, you know, it's, you get, it's normally a wealth of information. And if it's a, if you got the state has a lot of good DNA kind of aspects to the results, they're hammering them. And so when when Miss Goode got up today, and it wasn't Creighton Waters and it wasn't John Metters who are going to be the two really experienced prosecutors on this case, I was thinking, huh, if there was something very significant for the state, I would imagine one of those two would have been examining um, Agent Zapata. And so that first caught my attention, and then it turned out that there's no blood on the shirt. Right. No blood, period, on that shirt after the 74 cuts and testing. Um, and then we found out that there's, on Maggie's fingernails, you know, from a defense perspective, that there's a, another small set of DNA under her fingernails. And, you know, it, right. even though it's not in evidence, um, it was... C.B. Rowe, the uh, groundskeeper. Right. Well, it's not evidence, but the defense did a good job of basically saying, and am I going to tell you that she had just come from a nail salon and that she had had her nails done right before she went home? You know, that was pretty objectionable because he was you know, speculating with this expert, but he kind of, you know, got it in that that would really limit what kind of DNA could be present under someone's fingernails. And she did a good job of saying, well, anytime you touch something, you can come in contact. The bottom line is they're going to, assert that her nails were had just been done presumably totally cleaned and you know whatever kind of nails she had on or or or, or polish or whatever but and then she had another male dna mm -hmm. under her fingernails as the only other dna president present uh and no blood on the shirt was huge and that that today what you know we're talking about cuts for the state defense luke what was that that was an imputation um, there was, they took out a leg of the, of the state's case. There, there was nothing there that the defense couldn't live with, and a lot of things actually proved, helped their theory. And this was, can be somewhat mind-numbing because you've got what DNA has been using the past few years is some kind of, something called star mix, and it, it goes with proposition sets. But so, to try to take that out of it, I mean, you've got some possibly explainable things like Miss Murdoch's. DNA being on the, on the shell casings that didn't be, wasn't necessarily described as blood, but just on the shell casings around her, that paws were on the shot shells, which would make sense if he's ever loaded that gun or one of his guns, that his DNA would be on the feed room doorknob. You got the Benelli shotgun that Alec was actually holding, which he claims he got for protection. It's got a mixture, it's got his DNA, but also has Miss Murdoch's DNA. Now, whether that's a little bit of blood transferred from his hands for her or whether it's touch, you know, we don't know. Um, you got that same thing in the receiver part of the gun, in the side of the gun. Paul's cell phone didn't come up with a profile, which is interesting considering how much she touched the gun. The Suburban, I mean, the fact that you drive your own Suburban a lot and you have your DNA, but her DNA is also going to be on the steering wheel. It's not, it's nothing that you can't not explain it could be blood transfer or it could be that she drove it to the store recently um again the, the shocking thing was under her left fingernail they did a proposition set that said you know that there was this chance that cb Rowe, the groundskeeper uh, based on three alleles which is a pretty minor um 
contribution, but you couldn't rule it out, so it just gives them wiggle room. Um, but the biggest thing is no DNA, like you said, on, on the shirt. There's no blood on the shirt. Sorry, no blood on the shirt, but there is a little DNA. It's touch DNA. Paul's, his wife's, and, and Mr. Barber from the defense today kind of walked the, I think it was in uh, Recross, was able to walk uh, the DNA expert through. And, you know, that wouldn't be uncommon if a wife touched her husband's shirt. And I think even the, the markers on the shirt were kind of almost like, for, at least for Maggie, were up on the shoulder, like someone would touch you there. Um, and then, you know, he, he was able to kind of open the door in front of the jury regarding, you know, were you there for these meetings? regarding blood spatter and who told you to do this research memorandum, you know, concerning, you know, the effects of, the, of that and, you know, are you aware this got shipped off and she, she was denying it, but she did basically ultimately say, well, Creighton Waters told me to, to research this issue, right. which she talked about. Um, right. And we're hearing, they're trying to do some explaining on why they're not getting uh, blood testing why it's not coming back for blood on the shirt? What could it be because of this prior testing that CSI did? And I found this to be fascinating. You know, she regarding the presumption for blood there initially from the serologist, and then that being debunked by the DNA analyst. Nope, that's not blood. We did the um, you know the certain type of testing for it. The hemo, what was it called? The uh, I got it here someplace. But bottom line is they. It, definitively it's not blood and then hematrace 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 and then paul barber basically said well could be something else if it's not human that could have gotten the serologist to have this you know positive for it when actually it's not human blood she said basically or another primate and then i was th i actually started thinking about all you know obviously pigs aren't primates but they do all kinds of pig hunting yeah. and i didn't know where he's going with it then he said what about like fishing and so I, I don't know what he's doing with that. I don't know why you would float. Yeah. What about a fish? Could that have done it? If you didn't know the, as a defense lawyer, you're never supposed to cross oh, I know why. witnesses other than, you want to know why? Because he cut his hand on fish. <laughs> well, if you're gutting a fish, but that, he's explaining why, just in case they put up that blood spatter expert, it might be spatter, but it's not human blood. Because she basically said it's that. It's also, well, fish is on a primate. I know. So that's, yeah, that's, but there is, but I guess hemoglobin in fish. So what? fish blood fre frequently possesses several hemoglobins. So I don't so, know if that's going to be traced. So she tried to lock it down to primates. Well, the the hematrace only tests positive for human blood, higher primates, or ferrets, is what she oh. said. So, so I, that's why he said, "What about fish blood?" And she's like, "No, no, but it could it could be why there might be a spatter of some short sort. Let's say." bad job washing or whatever maybe a stain so let's think about this let's forecast that question <laughs> for the defense case yeah would it make me think they're either going to have a spatter expert available to talk about what that could have meant mm -hmm. or some kind of dna analyst i mean why do you float a question like that knowing she's going to shoot you down unless you're trying to plant a seed in the jury's mind right well, I think you, you plan a seed to argue it, or you plan a seed for your own expert. Um, that it was pretty clear. There's no no human blood. They cared enough to spend a bunch of taxpayer dollars to send it to a spatter blood spatter expert without telling him there's no human blood. So maybe they're just trying to explain the spatter if that is even a thing. So I don't know. So then finally, that brings us to the pathologist. 
Dr. Reimer? Reimer, yeah, Rimmer. MUSC. And then um, we well, Paul and Maggie. <laughs> well, I'll, yeah, so we, I'll talk a little bit about Paul and Luke. You might want to touch upon Maggie. I mean, it seemed to me that Paul was, you know, pathologists are there to, they're one of the last experts in a murder case, typically to testify for the state. They're really there to help tie up everything, explain the wounds, talk about cause of death, time of death if they can. Mm. And so, you know, we had two victims here, Paul and Maggie, and so the state started with Paul. You know, he had basically two, um, I mean, that was easy for the pathologist. I mean, the two um, shotgun wounds, um, you basically had the one in the chest, and this was, you know, there's stippling here, so there's this very close proximity. Um, three feet or less. Three feet or less, and so that helps us know that this is very close proximity shooting. Um, with, with huge Yeah, rifles. yeah. Well, this is shotguns. So these are okay. pellets. These are pellets, not... Um, right. I'm not a good answer. All right, well, <laughs> um, so these are, it's a shotgun. Uh, we know that at close range, they're quite mm -hmm. deadly. Um, this was so close with the stippling, three feet or less, that even the wadding of the shotgun and the wadding's there to help, you know, comes out with the... Uh, with the blast is found in the in the inside of Paul, and she was you know able to do some um, good analysis of this. I mean, basically the kill shot was the one that kind of came up through his head and, and you know neck and head. But she was really able to determine that when he was shot, he was not holding his hands up based on the positioning of the wound that kind of came up through his arm, and so that was pretty important, I guess, for the for the state's perspective. Perspective, they would say, well. He was ambushed. Um, he didn't. He wasn't, um, you know, trying to talk to his assailant. You know, please wait, don't do it. He was shot with his hands down, almost a surprise attack, or somebody so familiar holding right. a gun that you wouldn't expect to be shot by him. Allah, his dad. Allah, his dad. But still, if you think you're getting ready to get shot, I mean, you would, uh, yeah you would hold your hands up. That's really a natural reaction is to, if you really think you're gonna get shot, no, stop, don't, you're gonna hold your hands up. So, but it was, bottom line, it was the second shot that came up through his neck and his head was a fatal wound. Um, he fell, it incapacitated him immediately on that second shot and his hands were down. Mm. And that was, that was basically it. Um, any other takes from Paul or were you gonna jump right into? Just that the, the shot, the second shot, which I do think was the second shot, because the first one would not have been immediately fatal. Um, it would have caused a reaction where she thinks he kind of turned towards his shooter because it was at an angle where it went to the back, the base of his skull, didn't hit his face, but kind of went like that. So she kind of hypothesized that that was the second shot. I don't really have any real problem with that. It seems like he was coming out of the, the feed house, maybe somebody could have surprised him, ambushed him. Whether it was dad or not, he clearly, it wasn't a fight. He didn't have defensive wounds. But we got, yeah, no defensive wounds, no fight, hands down. Yeah, sounds like he got kind of waylaid right there at the feed room, um, killed with those shots with a shotgun, very close range due to the stippling. And what about Maggie, Lou? I know you want to talk a lot about. Well, she's the one that, I mean, obviously, I don't, I don't take issue. I'm not a doctor. I've done tons of pathologists. I don't take issue with her saying a certain wound would have been immediately fatal or not. Obviously, that makes sense when she's describing 
two wounds in particular are causing brain damage, you know that those could be fatal. What I do take a little issue with is how she tries to speculate about the the number of wounds in terms of which one occurred. Now, she's an expert. She can she speculate. Is. She can hypothesize. She can speculate. But again, common sense. I've got some common sense problems that maybe will be fleshed out on the cross. But we all know, of course, that six shots were fired at Maggie because we have six, 300 caliber you know, blackout shell casings around that area of her shooting. Now, it looks like all of the shots were generally she was facing her assailant um, but we have five wounds, so six shots based on showcasing, five actually distinct entrance wounds. So by all accounts, one of those missed. Um, and she also, the doctor, surmises that maybe the left wrist wound, which I'll get to in a second, could have been a through and through, you know, come through the wrist and then maybe caused an abdomen wound or something to that effect. She tries to say that, I don't know why. Usually when Again, when a, a bullet is rifled, it's going like a football. It has a very clear circular entrance wound. And when it hits an object, it kind of loses that orbit and it comes out in a less, less round and smooth way. Atypical is what they call it. So if it passes through, let's say a wrist, as the doctor surmised and maybe hits another part of the body, that entrance wound would have a very atypical kind of tumbling object type style. She didn't really get into all that, but here's where I take issue. You've got, you've got a wound to the abdomen that pierces her pancreas and her kidney. The doctor described that as being very painful, yet not fatal necessarily at first. A wound to the left thigh that also passed out the back. These are from the front. Now, both those wounds have stippling. Those are the only two of the wounds on Maggie that are noted to have stippling, which means that her assailant was three feet or closer to her. Now, why would the other wounds not have stippling? Now, if you're an assailant, typically you're closing the gap. You're, you're gaining on your target. Yeah. To me, those might be the final wounds, not necessarily the first wounds, but she will tell you that she thinks maybe those are first, and we'll talk about that. So you got that abdomen wound, you got a left thigh wound from the front. You have this left wrist wound that comes in like this and goes out. You've got this bizarre wound to me that she described as traveling up the skin of the breast, puncturing through the breast, coming out of the collar and then going into the neck. Which is one of the fatal wounds. Which is a fatal wound because it goes up here into her brain, which would require a serious bizarre angle on behalf of Maggie, and I'll talk about that. Then you've got one that comes into the base of the neck from a downward trajectory, um, and also is very fatal, kind of comes right here, hits her brain. So the doctor took great pains to describe the mechanism, if I'll just stand up, I don't know if this will get it, where she says that she thinks the first wound came into the abdomen causing extreme pain. And she kept analogizing to someone that has a, a kidney stone. And so that wound plus the thigh would cause her to double over in pain because that's what kind of that natural, oh, kind of pain. And then that she caught while doubled over the wound to the base of the skull, well, that might make sense. But she never ever once tried to explain how then she could get from a totally opposite direction a bullet flying up her chest bone through her breast 
out of her collar into her neck. So, and then she also doesn't explain how none of those other wounds have stippling, which means they were from further away. So I think those first two wounds might have been later wounds, even wounds when she was on the ground lying flat. I think, I don't know what to think, but I don't, I don't know that I can agree with the doctor. She never ever explained how you can be doubled over and then get a wound coming up this way from the opposite side. I so, think, so which one do you think is first? I think maybe a wrist, maybe she fell back and caught one almost if you think of someone falling backwards like in the matrix and you catch one like that. And then she could be lying on the ground and catch the other two as the shooter is now much closer. But what about boom, boom, but I don't know how you get one from the opposite end. I don't, unless you're sitting at that point maybe. If you somehow landed it didn't completely collapse and then you take one going down, it's, it's a very bizarre. But so I don't, I don't so really the, the biggest question mark for you is the stippling on two but not the others. Stippling on two and not the others. The two were the closest. I mean, she's not, there, are, there weren't wounds in the back. She wasn't running away. And the assailant is not backing up. So the first, he's going to be getting closer. So the stippling wounds are going to be the last ones as he's gotten close to you. But you can't just not explain the wound coming up her breastbone while explaining all the others because they're totally different to the kill shot in the back. I don't understand it. I don't know why they're trying so hard to explain. You know, you just, I mean, obviously they want to try to explain, but it, she's not doing a very good job at that part. In my humble opinion, I don't dispute that, you know, wounds going to certain places, hitting your brain are going to cause fatal injuries, but for her to go out on a limb and talk about which was first and which was second when it comes to Maggie, that's a struggle. But we do know that both Maggie and Paul were killed with two different weapons. Both of them have stippling, um, yeah. which is close range. Right. Paul on both, Maggie on, on a couple of these wounds, and there are no defensive wounds. Mm. None of them are holding their hands up. There's nothing of them trying to deflect or protect their body. Those are typically what are called defensive wounds. And this has seemed odd to me and not somebody who really is an expert in any of this. If it were to just be one shooter, how close were Paul and Maggie when they were found? Have they talked about that? Like, is it like a, you know, six feet apart to they, where it well, would possibly I, I would not know the answer to that until right around the time the pathologist was testifying, there is a reporter that has just released some body cam footage of the first responding officer. I thought that was already in. Um, and Paul and Maggie's bodies are blurred out, but they are in relatively close proximity to each other. I would say... I said to you like 10, 15 feet apart from each other. Um, I'd say 20, 30 feet maybe. But there, I mean, there was a diagram that's in evidence where they're they're going to be measured in relation to each other. And the jury will have a lot more body cam and photos than we, the public, do at this point. They weren't that far away. I mean, right. if he is killed first, I mean, he's very much surprised. So it seems like he was killed first. He didn't have a chance to react or do much. You'd think she'd be running. Um, it's almost like they were simultaneously attacked at, in unison, practically, because they really didn't. She's not running. She's right. facing her assailant. Yeah. Um, who's, and just all of the, like, 
for then one person to have to gain, you know, distance and then also switch a gun. I just, they seem, like all of that doesn't really. If I were her and I just seen my son killed, whether it's right. my husband or not, I'd be hauling ass. Right. Or and picking she, up a gun. And she is not hauled ass. She is right there facing yeah. her accuser. You know, one of the court TV analysts today was talking, trying to make sense of all this and talking about generally the husband always looked upon as a suspect in a murder case mm -hmm. uh, of a wife and talked about how, you know, the stippling and she was saying, well, this is just a terrible crime. It's close quarters. It's a real crime of passion. Basically, you know, trying to indicate that her belief was that it would be the husband, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Alec Murdoch and just, but you know, crime of passion is close quarters. You're going to have defensive wounds. Typically you can have one weapon used. So here we've got no defensive wounds. We got both Maggie and Paul killed around the exact same time using two weapons and I mean almost seemingly simultaneously where no one's running. Yeah. And so to me it would seem less of a crime of passion and more of a ambush. Yeah. And less shots fired. I feel like also that's touched upon with like crimes of passion. It's like, you know, crimes of passion are usually like noted by multiple shots. It's like, you know, Paul has I guess two. Um, and then Maggie was six shots. I don't know if that really makes a difference, but for like the crime of passion argument. Well, I think I'm still caught up in hers. I think her shooter was further away um, and gaining on her with the, the abdominal and thigh shots had stippling. So to me, those are the last shots. Um, and just kind of closing the gap from a distance, but she's not running either because she, she's facing that person either because she's incapacitated already. I mean, one shot was a miss, and that's a highly accurate kind of rifle, those types of rifles. I mean, if you're 10 feet away, you're not, you shouldn't be missing Especially a, a large target. But if you're closing the gap, you missed once, you've incapacitated her, to me, the final, the stippling shots are the closest shots. They have to be within three feet. You heard from the pathologist. The other shots are further away. It's just bizarre in the way they occurred, um, coming from top down and one from up here. So. Yeah, certainly a lot, a lot has been unpacked and will continue to be presented and unpacked. Um, do you guys have any final Closing, closing arguments. <laughs> no, I mean, it's fascinating. I think we're coming into the end of the state's case. I mean, tomorrow, I mean, Dick Carpoolian was very much up and down during the pathologist's testimony today. He's going to be cross-examining her tomorrow. Let's see if he is tracking the way Luke's tracking. And then we're looking, we've still got a lot of witnesses left in terms of investigators that will be wrapping up this case, putting a, a bow on it. We've got cousin Eddie. Mm -hmm whose defense lawyer we know pretty well, has been in and around Walterboro, kind of queued up for his testimony. Um, yeah. Yep. And so we'll, we'll see what the state has left, but it seems like they're gonna, well, they also have some additional, they got some um, brand new data just last night from GM, um, who apparently were watching the trial and noting that the FBI agent was saying, you know, we couldn't get this, the, the OnStar GPS location data off this 
the Chevy that uh, Alec Murdoch was driving, they they said that nothing exists, and then suddenly GM executive said, "Oh, we better not look bad. Let's go ahead and send this over." And so I know that they're gonna, they're they're actively looking at that data right now. So we're gonna have some more um, analysts related to the truck. We also know that Harpootlian's got his own expert on the, the OnStar um, vehicular data because he talked about it today in court. You know, I, I get my expert that. So we're back into the state's pathologist tomorrow. A lot more going on. I would just say that if I commit a heinous crime, I will do it in my 1977 MGB. It has no computer, no data. It may leave me on the side of the road at that heinous crime, but no computer will tell on me. That's right. That's right. Well, awesome. Thank you guys so much, and tune in next time for The Accused. All right.